0: Hi, everybody. My name is Nick Beard. I'm the audio visual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. So, all series long, we've been talking about how God will dislocate our heart to be restorers, rebuilders, and renewers. I want you to welcome with me a a modern-day Nehemiah, someone who's restoring our communities through financial literacy, through bringing peace to the communities at large here on the peninsula. Would you welcome John Liotti? So, John, tell us, tell this church how your heart has been dislocated and what you're doing about it and how.
1: Oh, man. Um... Man, don't we live in dislocated times? I just, I just feel that way so, so often these days. Um, you know, my heart was first dislocated by living with, um, with immigrants and refugees on the border in Mexico, and, uh, and how that really just changed um, my wife and ours' lives uh, forever. And we eventually landed here in Silicon Valley, and, and currently we work serving single mothers and students, single mothers primarily in the North Fair Oaks neighborhood, also at Hawes, and in East Palo Alto, but also uh, we serve students in uh, all of our local high schools. And, you know, these kids, this is tumultuous times, and there's there's some factors that are just driving this deloca- this dislocation in deep ways. And, you know, there's really kind of two things that are going on. One is you all are familiar with, which is the housing crisis, which is just creating just uh, an inability for the working class or the middle class to actually survive and thrive here in our valley, and it is something... That is just dislocating families. Many we're, we're finding families that are living three, you know, three families to a home, or living in their cars, or, or doing whatever they can just to stay here because the jobs are here, and that dislocation is just desperate. And we can't break the cycles of poverty in the lives of a single mom or a family of a student if they can't find stable housing, and it's just brutal. The second issue, and I know this is controversial, so just give me a little grace, but. The immigration issue right now is just deeply impacting everybody that we serve. We have 40 moms that we serve at, at Haas. Um, half of them have what was called temporary protected status. It was status that was granted to them by the federal government because they're Salvadoran immigrants. And um, they've been living here for, in some cases, over a decade, raising families. Their kids are American citizens. And that, that status was just revoked. So they're all being put on notice that they have to be deported. So... And it is just, and I know this is a contentious issue, and my my intention is not to bring more contention, but it's to say, gosh, these are beautiful families, beautiful people that have all the assets to succeed, that their kids are going to school, they love their families, and grace is being manifested in their lives, and now chaos is being manifested in their lives because of immigration. And I just, it just, I feel so torn and dislocated over that.
0: Well, first of all, I just say thank you. You need to be bringing these contentious topics to us. As the church, sometimes we want to avoid them, but this is where God lives in our lives, right? In those places of tension and curiosity and mystery. Uh, So what would you tell us? What if there was someone in this room, or how could all of us some way participate? You created AbleWorks. What does AbleWorks do, and how could we partner with you?
1: So a couple ways. So on, on, on an AbleWorks level, uh, we need volunteers to go into schools. Um, we've, uh, we're at uh, 10 high schools right now from everywhere from uh, Carlmont down to Sunnyville and in um, Cupertino, and we go in with volunteers and we work with primarily immigrant kids in special ed classes, teaching financial literacy, life skills, and decision making skills. And we just need volunteers to come in and help serve those kids. We try to keep our staff numbers low for the sake of cost, and by that way we deploy volunteers. Secondly, uh, you know, at, at these, we've got a lot of ways to get involved with the women at Haas and other ways. It's a little more targeted because of the nature of the work that we do, but um, but there's lots of ways, and I would love to talk to you about ways to get involved. Now, on more of a existential level, I think about our churches, I think about PCC and Menlo Church and and Peninsula Church, all the churches around here, and I, I look at you all and I say there there is greatness in these pews. And you all have the ability to influence the systems that are, keeping, that are bringing bondage to our region. Mm. Education, housing, uh, stuff like immigration, uh, all, the, all the great isms and things. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, the church is powerful, especially in Silicon Valley. I believe in you. So I would say get involved on some of the, the high-level, policy-level, uh, structural-level issues in any way possible. We would love to walk with you through that. Second, there's a woman here. I'm not going to mention her name. Um, but she's the example. So that's high level. I'm going to go like super ground level, which is developing a relationship with the other. And the other can be lots of things. It could be a Democrat ooh, or a Republican. Oh, it could be a Muslim. It could be a homeless person. It could be an immigrant. And I think out of relationship comes beauty and comes knowledge and comes understanding in ways that we never could do. And I feel like in this society, that's what we lack is relationship and sitting across and re- with the other. So, uh, this this woman in, in your community has been walking with an immigrant woman for the past three or four years, and it has dramatically changed her life and both lives. I would invite you to enter into those relationships.
0: It's awesome. Can we thank John? <clears throat> So, John will have a table out. You'll be around afterwards if you want to connect, if you want to volunteer. If he stirred something in your mind, get involved. Uh, we also, PCC also has a group that meets once a month called the Racial Justice Collective. And we meet to talk about how some of these underserved areas are also affecting how we treat each other with justice and equality amongst the races. And we're passionate about that. So, thank God for this. And with that, would you welcome our guest speaker today, Mark Mitchell. Thanks, John. Thank you.
2: Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you again. I think this is maybe the fourth or fifth or even sixth year that Gary and I have done this pulpit swap thing, and it's always really fun, I know, for me to be able to come here and see a lot of friends from PCC, and I know that our church, Central Peninsula Church, really enjoys having Gary with us as well. When Gary and I met several months ago to discuss this pulpit swap, he said that you would be in the book of Nehemiah, and I was glad to hear that because I love this book. I've taught through this book several times, but then Gary told me that the week I was scheduled to be here, you guys would be in Nehemiah chapter 7. Now if you take a quick glance at Nehemiah chapter 7, you'll see that basically it consists of a list a very long list at that. In fact, there are over 100 names on this list, very strange names which you probably cannot even pronounce. But it's almost like Nehemiah is calling roll in chapter 7. Reminds me of when I took a preaching class in seminary and we had to choose a passage of Scripture to preach on in front of the class and one of my fellow students ventured to preach on a passage much like this one Actually I thought he did a really good job but when he was done the professor said he had to give him a B instead of an A because the passage itself was a B. So I guess you cannot preach an A sermon from a B passage. And our professor forewarned us when preaching avoid the lists. They're deadly. You know soon it's going to be time for graduations and I remember at my son's college graduation from Wheaton College a couple of years ago, you know, after the speeches and the songs, it took what seemed to be an eternity to hand out the diplomas, over 500 names, you know, each graduate proudly striding across the stage and receiving his diploma. It took so long, there were some in the crowd who actually left after the one they came to see actually had his or her moment in the sun. Others like me had to wait. My son was in the middle of the pack, Mitchell. Well, of course. I waited through what seemed for me to be like an eternity of a long list of nobodies until that one name was read that meant something to me. If I were to read this list of names in Nehemiah chapter 7, some of you might want to get up and leave. I mean, it may be the word of God, but if it's possible, it's almost like God is taking a break from things that really matter here. I mean, we don't know any of these people. What could this possibly have to do with us? Many of us here uh, use Facebook, maybe to keep in touch with people. You know, if I went onto my Facebook page right now, I would find that I have over 300, or excuse me, 1,350 friends. And I can scroll down and I can glance at all the people I know, some I know well, others I hardly even know who they are. And Nehemiah chapter 7 is kind of like Nehemiah's Facebook friends. Some of these people he knew well, others he had never even met. Most of these names are people that we would have known nothing about if they weren't on this list. We would never have known about Mikmash or Lod, or Big Vi. But for some reason, these names, these names are important to me and Maya, and they should be to us. It's very interesting, uh, if you go to the third third chapter Uh, or third letter, I should say, uh, of John, the apostle, he writes to an elder of the church named Gaius, and at the end of that letter, John says, oh, by the way, greet the friends by name. What an intriguing thing to say. And I wonder if the apostle John had in the back of his mind something Jesus once said, In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name, by name. Jesus calls us by name, personally, one at a time, into his flock, and what kind of salvation would it be if Jesus just kind of called us en masse, with no knowledge of our names, Names are so important that the book of Revelation says one day Jesus will give us a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. One day you're going to get a new name from Jesus, and it's just his special name for you. Isn't that great? The church is made up of people with names, this is a flock not a herd, and if you lose sight of the importance of names, you miss your calling as a church. When we recognize names, we're saying, you are important. I'm glad it's you that are here and no one else, and Nehemiah understood this. Remember, his initial job was to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. It was a, it was a massive undertaking. And when we come to chapter 7, that job was completed. It was finished. And you've probably seen how the enemy was absolutely stunned at how quickly they were able to do it. But did you know that Nehemiah's job was not over? Nehemiah still had to take care of matters inside the walls. His job wasn't just to rebuild the wall, but to rebuild the people of God within the The walls, to rebuild them into a separate, godly, mature community within the holy city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah knew that a city is much more than walls and buildings and houses. A city is people, people with names. And Nehemiah never lost sight of the fact that the walls exist for the people, the people don't exist for the walls. And these people, as I said, have names. And that's Nehemiah's focus in chapter 7 all the way to chapter 12. The people of God being established in the city of God. And just as a footnote, did you know that God is in the cities? God is in the cities. Did you know that heaven is depicted in scripture as a heavenly city? It's called the New Jerusalem. And so in the end, we're not going to live in the suburbs. We're not even going to live out in the country. We're going to live in a city. And it's going to be very different than the big cities we know today. It's going to be a renewed city. And that's the picture God gives us of heaven. It's interesting. The Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. So you will be an urbanite whether you like it or not. And you know what, there's a trend in that direction today. In 2016, an estimated 54.5% of the world's population lived in a big city. By 2030, 60%, one in three of every person on planet Earth will live in cities with over 500,000 inhabitants. And that means if we're going to reach the world for Christ, we're going to have to learn how to make a difference in the city. Now, for Nehemiah, getting people to move into this city of Jerusalem involved a number of steps, a process. And so the first thing he had to do is he had to enlist leadership for the city. So let me start by reading Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their houses. Now, the key word in those verses is the word appoint. Nehemiah has to make some key appointments to ensure the city runs properly. Now, you know, the foundation of that city, of Jerusalem, was the Lord God Himself, whose dwelling place was where? The temple. So, Nehemiah ensures the proper functioning of the temple and its worship, first by appointing gatekeepers, singers, and Levites. And then he turns to the more secular administration of the city and he appoints two men to be in charge his own brother, Hanani, who was mentioned, by the way, back in chapter 1, as well as Hananiah who was in charge of the fortress. It's like Hanani was the mayor of the city and Hananiah was the chief of police in charge of security. Notice how Nehemiah was careful to choose men who had proven their faithfulness and their commitment to the Lord over time. As all great leaders do, Nehemiah knew how to delegate, to give clear directions and then get out of the way. Theodore Roosevelt once said, the best executive is the one who has sense enough to pick good people to do what he wants done and self-restraint enough to keep from meddling with them while they do it. Nehemiah was that kind of leader. Notice also he gave them directions to ensure the safekeeping of the city. Nehemiah puts a lot of emphasis here on the guarding of the gates around the city and keeping them closed until late in the morning. He even sets up a kind of neighborhood watch. Now, obviously, Nehemiah was still concerned about the possibility of invasion from their enemies. But Nehemiah was equally concerned about another kind of invasion, one that was way more subtle. You see, ideas and influences could come through those gates. And those ideas and influences could undermine the work of God every bit as much as a military invasion could. By closing the gates, Nehemiah was protecting God's people from the subtle inroads of worldliness, helping them to regain a sense of their unique and separate identity as people of God. And I would just ask you here this morning a question. Are you guarding the gates of your own life are you guarding the gates are you sometimes even shutting off the gates are there things that you will not let in to your life are there things that you will not let into your family's life how about the gates around this church it's interesting In Revelation chapter 21, the New Jerusalem, this heavenly city, is described as a place where they never have to shut the gates because it's always daytime and it's never night. And then it says nothing unclean can come in to that city. You see, the gates don't have to be shut or guarded because all evil will have been judged. But until that time... We have to guard the gates. I think of institutions in our country, great universities like Princeton and Harvard and Yale. Did you know those three schools started as evangelical Christian institutions with the express purpose of training missionaries and pastors? What happens? What happened? Well, here's what happened. Someone didn't guard the gates. Someone didn't guard the gates. I think of families who for generations, the truth of the gospel has been modeled authentically and passed on. But then somehow in like one generation, that heritage is lost. What happens? How does that happen? Oftentimes, the gates around that family were not properly guarded. Now, I understand there are times to keep the gates open. We cannot shut ourselves off from the world entirely. In fact, Jesus sent us into the world. The the, the issue is not being in the world. It's being of the world. There's a difference. It's being so unguarded that we begin to adopt the world's way of thinking about life. We forget what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed to this world. Uh, To do that, to obey that, we have to guard the gates. So the first thing Nehemiah did in this process of of urbanizing Jerusalem was to enlist leadership that would ensure the city ran properly and safely. Now, there was still a minor problem. There were hardly any people at this time living in Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. It says, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So this is kind of funny when you think about it. So the temple is up and running, right? And, and the mayor is showing up to work, and the police force is operating well, but there's no people. There's no people in the city. And there were a number of reasons for this. Part of it was that when the Babylonians invaded Judah and Jerusalem 160 years earlier, the population of Jerusalem was decimated. Now, the people who returned from exile some 70 years earlier would have settled in their original cities outside of Jerusalem. And the fact that the city itself had been decimated and was in a state of shambles didn't make it a very attractive place to live. Nobody wanted to move there. Now remember, this was God's holy city. I mean, this is the city of David, right? The source of pride for the Jewish people. In its heyday, Jerusalem would have had 20,000 people living within the walls. But now most Jews were living in the rural areas around Jerusalem, making a living on small family farms. So somehow Nehemiah had to get people to move back into the city. And to do that, he started by holding an assembly. Look at verse 5. We read, So God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return this is what I found there notice Nehemiah says that this whole assembly was God's idea he says God put it on my heart has God ever put something on your heart he does that from time to time The purpose of this assembly was to enroll people by genealogies. Now, why is that important? Because Nehemiah, first of all, had to know who was available and, as we'll see, qualified to repopulate the city. You see, only those who were truly Jewish and could prove so from their genealogy were qualified to live in the holy city. This was not a racial issue. It was more of a spiritual issue. Again, Nehemiah is concerned about preserving the distinct spiritual identity of the Jewish people in the middle of the spiritual melting pot of Palestine. And so to that end, Nehemiah found an old book. And I can imagine him sort of dusting off the book Uh, And inside of that book is the genealogy of those who had originally returned 90 years earlier from exile under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel. Here in verses 6 through 73, we have a very long list of names making up this genealogy. Don't panic, I'm not going to read it. (laughs) But here's a breakdown of the list. Verse 7, we have a list of the leaders in the first return. In verses 8 through 38 is a list of people according to their families and their original villages. Verses 39 through 60, we have a long list of the original priests, Levites, and temple workers. In verses 61 to 65 is a list of those who could not prove their Jewish ancestry, And then in verses 66 to 69 are the totals of those who returned, both men and animals. And finally, in the last couple of verses, we see a record of the gifts given for the rebuilding of the temple. Now, again, on the surface, to us, this is just another one of those long lists of, of names and places that are hard to pronounce and mean very little to us, but again, for the Jews... This meant a lot. It was almost like our Vietnam memorial is to us. These were the names of the people who'd sacrificed greatly to reestablish Israel after 70 years of exile. But there's also a practical purpose here. Again, it was this genealogy uh, that the Jews of Nehemiah's day used to establish what I would call their spiritual citizenship. Without a connection to these names, they really weren't members of that community. And again, you might wonder, well, great, but what does this have to do with us? Well, did you know that in a very real sense, you and I have a spiritual genealogy that connects us to Jesus Christ? And did you know that if we are to be a part of God's new community, And if we are to be a part of the new Jerusalem above, we will have to prove our spiritual genealogy. Throughout scripture, we read of something kind of mysterious called the book of life. The book of life with the names, the names of every single one of God's people written in it. Consider this, the prophet Isaiah speaks of all those who are recorded for life in Jerusalem. Jesus tells us to rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Paul speaks of fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And to the believer, Hebrews says, you've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and in the book of Revelation we hear of those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world imagine that and then it all comes to a climax in Revelation 21 where the New Jerusalem is described as a place where only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life can dwell there so you must belong to to the Lamb, to have your name written in that book. And that's what this seemingly meaningless genealogy in Nehemiah points to. Now, it's it's possible that for some of, of you that might be a troubling idea because if that book of life were open today, the book that determines where you spend eternity, you're not sure your name would be written in it. And I just want you to know that, that you can change that. You can change that. Remember, this is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's speaking of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away my sin and your sin. And so if you simply say yes to Him as your Savior, you trust in Him as your Savior, and you submit to Him as the Lord of your life, you will find your name has been written in that book and you'll never, ever have to worry that it will be crossed out. Billy Graham, who uh, we lost, as you all know, this week to heaven, Uh, our loss, his gain for sure, but he put it this way, God sees all, he knows all. I wish I could speak with Billy's twang right now, but I won't try The moment you receive Christ, he said, the moment you repent of your sins, the moment you turn to Christ, your name is printed in the Lamb's book of life. And then he went on and he said, I know my name is in the Lamb's book of life, not because of Billy Graham. I'm no different than you. You say, well, you read the Bible and preached to all those people all over the world. Don't you think God takes account of that? Yes, he does, Billy said, but he doesn't save me because of that. He saves me exactly the same way he saves you, through Jesus Christ. In a sense, every single one of us is called to be involved in this, well, this urbanization project, right? This doesn't mean that you all have to move into the inner city of San Francisco or Chicago or New York, but it means you do have to prepare for the new Jerusalem above. And we do that first and foremost by simply trusting in his son. But it doesn't just stop there. It also involves, as one whose name is written in the book of life, offering ourselves willingly to him. So if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your name is written in that book. In fact, Revelation says your name was written there since before the foundation of the world. That's incredible. There's great security in knowing that because I believe God uses what we might call indelible ink when he writes your name in that book. It can never be erased. But this passage, I think, also challenges us whose names are written in that book. And I would just ask you, would you have willingly volunteered for relocation into the city of God? Because the things of God matter so much to you. Today, are you willingly offering all that you are to all that you know God is? That's the question this leaves us with. Uh, We're not gonna look at it, but if we skipped ahead to chapter 11, it picks up where chapter seven ends, and in it, Chapter 11, we see another long list of names, and I'm going to leave that for Gary to preach. (laughs) But we see there that God moved in the hearts of many, and many of them volunteered even to relocate into the city of Jerusalem. And what those women and men teach us is that to count for God, you must commit yourself to the things that matter to God. To count for God, you must commit yourself to the things that matter to God. So what matters to God? Well, in this chapter, we see several things that matter to God. One of the things we see that matters to God is worship. Worship matters to God. That's why Nehemiah appointed uh, Levites and singers for the temple. We also see in this chapter that, that godly character matters to God. That's why Nehemiah appointed Uh, Those who were faithful, those who feared God. And that's why he ensured the the gates would be guarded. And most of all, we see that people, individual people matter to God. Uh, To count for God, you must commit yourself to the things that matter to God. And I just wonder, has God ever compelled you, like deep within, to do something for him that is above and beyond what you have to do? Above and beyond. Nobody's telling you to do it. Nobody's twisting your arm. It's not actually in the Bible that you're told to do this or that. But somehow the Holy Spirit kind of tugs at your heart and nudges you to do something. God sometimes works in that way. Maybe he's calling you to adopt a child. Maybe he's calling you to get involved in the immigration ministry. Maybe he's calling you to move into the inner city of San Francisco. Maybe he's calling you to quit your job and be a stay-at-home parent. There are times that God will call us to do something that scares us to death. And that's a great thing. And I would say at the very least, if you're a part of this church, he's calling you to commit to being one of God's people here on the peninsula, to gather and celebrate God, to grow together in likeness, and to give of your abilities and your resources to reach others. God put that on the hearts of those in Nehemiah's day. And chapter 11 ends with Jerusalem being filled with almost 10,000 people. And they were men and women who counted for God, Because they committed themselves to the things that matter to God. And that's the question that each of us has today. Will I commit myself to the things that matter to God? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that even something like a long list can speak to us. We thank you that You have written our names in the book of life as we trust in you and your son, Jesus. Thank you for the security of knowing that. Thank you for the hope of knowing that we will one day dwell in that wonderful heavenly city called the New Jerusalem, that we will be citizens of that city. Lord, we can hardly wait. Meanwhile, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who would be willing to offer all that we are to all that we know of you, that we would commit ourselves to the things that truly matter to you. Lord, you know how fickle we are. You know how often our minds wander. You know how often, Lord, we get caught up in the things of this world that distract us from what really truly matters. Forgive us for that, Lord, and teach us to hear that still small voice within calling us, nudging us, tugging us to do something for you. Lord, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for how incredibly patient you are with each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church Podcast. We believe you're here for a reason and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We are PCC.